Hello and welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane LeMaster. I want to start off by thanking all of our listeners. Um, I've been getting increasing support from everybody who listens to the podcast. I've been getting lots of people come up to me and, and talk to me about things that they've learned and how it's impacted their life. And I just want to let everybody know that that means so much. And just to let everybody know um, who does listen that our podcast gets out there with your help and your help alone. So it's my job to kind of help put some of these messages out there. And uh, I rely on you guys to like and share the podcast and get the word out so we can spark up some more of these deep conversations out in our communities um, to affect positive change. So uh, with that being said, I want to let everybody know that we are, of course, always sponsored by my private practice consulting firm, MindOps. You can find us at www.mind-ops.com. We're a full-service private counseling and consulting firm with specialties in addictions counseling, general psychotherapy, psychedelic integration therapies, and sport and performance psychology. So if you have any mental health needs or just want to improve the way your mind functions, and helps it function better for you, feel free to reach out to us at any time and book your free first session with us at mindops.com. So that being said, I want to get into our good news section for the day. And this uh, news story is particularly interesting because it relates directly to my decision to uh, incorporate this good news story segment into my podcast. So the title of the, the story I want to go over today The title is The Proven Health Benefits of Positive News and How to Deal with the Reality Today. Um, Again, this article was put out on the Good News Network, uh, goodnewsnetwork.org. And as I was reading through it, you know, it it hit home because to me, I, I know from personal experience that hearing good news makes me feel better and hearing negative or bad news uh, makes me feel bad, uh, whether it's uh, out of fear or uh, anger or anything like that. And so part of my reason for bringing this good news section to my podcast is to just spread a little positivity in your life today. And the article directly relates to this. It it points out a number of different studies, um, which I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it cites a lot of positive Uh, mental health benefits, physical health benefits, including reducing the risk for cardiovascular diseases, um, reducing stress cortisol hormones in the body, which we all know um, with some of the new research coming out that stress is one of the leading killers uh, as it leads to a lot of different um, physical and mental health issues. So if you guys want to, you can look up this article yourself, but it, it really talks about um, all the benefits as well as you know, all, well, all the benefits of hearing positive news, but also all the negative um, health risks that come with um, constantly consuming negative information. So just hoping that this, uh, this, gets, this strikes a chord with you and you can go and look it up yourself. So on to our guest today. We have a very special guest with us, uh, Dr. Rob Colbert. Um, Rob is a, a friend of mine, and you know we've only known each other for a couple of years. Again, you know he's one of these guests that I'm shocked that we've only known each other for a couple of years because the more I find out about you, um, you know our paths have intersected numerous times. You know we may never have recognized each other though back then. Like I think I think you were in high school in Loveland 
right? When I was also in the same high school, but totally different classes and our paths separated again and, and uh, I never got to know you back then. So he's kind of um, a kindred spirit of mine. Um, so I wanted to have him on today. He has a very interesting perspective on consciousness and um, he also has, uh, is it a PhD or a PsyD? PhD. PhD. Um, and he'll go into that as well. Um, just finished his dissertation um, on some uh, psychedelic research added to the body of that that um, that knowledge base, and so welcome, Rob. Hi, welcome. Thank great, you. Yeah, great to have you here. And um, I always start my podcast out with the same question for all my guests, and that is, um, when you hear the title of the podcast, "Conversations with the Mind," what strikes a chord with you? What resonates, and what thoughts come up to you as far as what that what that phrase means. So I guess what first struck me when I, uh, when I first heard the question um, is that it's kind of, a, it's, it's a conversation with ghosts. Mm. It's a conversation with ghosts of our own mind, but also ghosts of the past. Um, terms like the mind or uh, things like that have been thrown around for thousands of years. And uh, within that, we still have no tangible source of mind. Mm-hmm. Right, um, even in modern times, like we uh, we talk about a person who has a depressed mind, um, and then you know some scientists base it on oh well it might be the serotonin level or dopamine or they, they try and blame it on these neurotransmitters, um, but it's interesting because they they try and tie that to the brain. However, in the same person, if you looked at serotonin levels uh, in in other parts of their body. They're they're just as affected uh, as far as being depressed, right? So like, um, their gut looks depressed, their toe would look depressed, right? So, this location of mind in the brain has uh, always been of question to me. Uh, I don't think that there's any solid evidence for that, um, but that uh, yeah, no, that, that uh, when we when we talk about mind, it really is this etheric thing that we really don't have uh, a, a tangible foundation for mm-hmm. but that doesn't stop us from talking about it Absolutely. and I think that and that and that humans have been interested in this um, and I believe that that's just part of self-awareness is that's what we're describing is like oh not only do we experience things but we keep a record of it and track it and can predict in the future or um, make adjustments to um, to our future selves right in that sense of mind mm-hmm. and so it's also interesting to locate mind <clears throat> in a sense of time because the same person, you know, like if we if we looked at them uh, in depression, well, uh, momentarily something could happen to them that changes all of the neurotransmitters in their their body, right? Like uh, a traumatic event. It could be a traumatic uh, event. It could be a very positive event, right? right? Yeah, like sure. let's say uh, we're looking at them and we're like, wow, you know, we we see these changes in their levels of serotonin, so they're not experiencing the same sensations or emotions um, as as other people might feel. They look depressed. And they could get really good news. Let's say they, were, they came across a, a friend that they had been looking for and hadn't seen for a long while. Mo- instantaneously, neurotransmitters will be produced in their body that showed the, the other side of the spectrum, right? right. They would be filled with um, joy and elation and uh, the positive uh, you know, uh, aspects of that could be measured in the neurotransmitters. Sure, isn't that uh, related to mirror neurons and, and things like that? When people get back together who've been apart for a long time and pick up sort of where they left off? That can. Um, mirror neurons is uh, also 
more related to our uh, uh, a subjective experience of something that we observe. Mm -hmm. And so it could be that you know we see the elation and joy in the friend that we're meeting for a long time. We see that, and our body mirrors it. But there's also a very subjective reality that um, it, there's not a mirror neuron taking place. It's actually no, you feel good, sure. right? Like you, it's just like bam, there it is. Um, and so that might just be related to memories or. Um, associations with that mm -hmm. person, right? Just remembering, like, wow, we have really good conversations and laugh a lot. Sure, there it is. Yeah, the the theory of the mind. Uh, I don't know how anybody couldn't be interested in it. You know, for me, you know, I think I chose the path of um, psychology and studying studying the mind through college, um, just out of that natural born interest because it's, you know, it's so infinite, and we have such little, like you said, tangible evidence to say where is consciousness or how does it interact um, and the fact that you know it's infinite like that means that we can continue to study it and study it and constantly be be discovering new things right which is exciting for me mm -hmm. uh, I think one of my one of my questions in in uh, philosophy of the mind in undergrad was exactly that like where where is the mind um, and I really like Stan Groff's um, conceptualization the way he puts it you know that the mind is not localized in the brain so why are we putting so much emphasis on the brain um you know your phd is also in psychology so you've you've studied the it's actually in anthropology anthropology my bad um, yeah, no, no no that's fair I have, a, I have a mix of credentials right yeah and you in our conversations uh they tend to go into the psychology maybe that's because we have similar interests in that area mm -hmm. um but yeah, the psychology of the mind is so fascinating to me because, um, you know, I get this sense that it's not localized in the brain and therefore, you know, a lot of our treatment methods these days with psychopharmacology and things like that target just the brain structure, just the neurons, just the, the pathways that are either functioning or not functioning or, um, you know, we talk about people's brain chemistry being off and so we want to treat it with a drug, right? But we're finding that you know, consciousness itself, you know, depression has an element of consciousness in it. It's not just a chemical imbalance, you know, it's a shift in your consciousness. It's a mm -hmm. shift in your perception of the world around you. You know, it's a shift in the story that you're telling yourself about your situation. Um, and that part also needs to be addressed. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And actually, uh, I'm, uh, I just, I'm, I'm a strong believer in dispelling the myth of the chemical imbalance. Um, the truth about it, we don't know enough about uh, the hundreds of neurotransmitters in our body to really know what a balance would look like. Mm -hmm. And as I said, like our bodies are automatic protein builders. Like they will just generate the things that we need when we need them. Adrenaline being one of the most significant ones. It's and an it's amazingly most, adaptable. Yeah, it's, it's it's an amazingly adaptable chemical, but also its structure is super simple. So it it it, it covers a, a wide range of experiences. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, uh, that that uh, has kind of been a line that um, uh, physical scientists, specifically who are studying the mind and stuff, are trying to find a physical source mm -hmm. of depression. And since the discovery of neurotransmitters uh, seventy years ago, I think uh, was when we first started to describe the first couple. Um, acetylcholine, I think, was the first uh, discovered. Then followed like serotonin, dopamine, and so we had this short list, but we they were it was a very active list, and so scientists were excited about that. 
but then, as we've got, as that uh, research has continued, we've discovered over a hundred different neurotransmitters, mm -hmm. and so it's become more of a mystery. We can't just boil it down to this simple few. And regretfully, uh, that progress hasn't been made in how um, you know society and culture talk about these things, right? Um, because I would even ask, like when we're talking about this mind where it's localized in the body, I would question whether it's even localized in an individual. Sure. Because, um, like I said, conversations with ghosts, uh, you know, relating to philosophy, uh, we, we engage the minds of these people who lived thousands of years ago, now in this moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in that sense, because we are humans and we've been able to record this history, that sense of mind now expands thousands of years, right? And so within those thousands of years, we've had all sorts of different stories about what is, what isn't, right? Some go towards more mystical things, and you know, science was even mystical to people. Right. It still is a mystery to some people and how it works. So how do you interact with, how do you personally interact with, like you said, this knowledge base that's been left through time for us from our ancient ancestors? How do you personally interact with that? Oh, wow. So all sorts of ways, right? Mm -hmm. So first off, uh, a PhD is a doctorate of philosophy, which just means that uh, I, I have gone through and mined a thread of philosophy uh, in a way that uh, then allowed me to make a unique contribution to the field. Mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't make that unique contribution without understanding all of the people that came before and made, mm -hmm. made contributions you themselves. Stand on, you stand on the shoulders of giants. Right. right. Right, and so in that, I actually had to look down at the shoulders that I was standing on and the shoulders that they were standing on. Yeah. Um, I, I, I feel like I had a benefit because I went um, to uh, California Institute of Integral Studies and was in a department um, of anthropology and social change, which is a radical department. We actually, um, <clears throat> some of the values are based in post-colonial studies, uh, post-capitalist studies. Uh, it, it has an emphasis in feminism, um, and so... Uh, within that, I got to yeah. It was a, it was a critical evaluation of the shoulders, mm -hmm. right? And so, my dissertation project uh, uh, actually was to interview adult couples that use MDMA recreationally. Uh, within that, like MDMA has a body of literature, and this spans um, well. You know, it was uh, first patented by Merck Pharmaceuticals in 1912. So there's some literature there. But then as far as human consumption, it's not till later in the 50s and then a re big resurgence in the 70s. And so those were some of the shoulders, the, the, the people who were writing that literature were the shoulders that I was had to stand on. Mm -hmm. And so um, within that, since the 1980s, when it was banned, there was this push towards the very scientific evaluation and clinical use, right? And so within that, uh, the scientific measurement had to control for variables, Right, and so in order to control those variables, they, they basically uh, sterilize the situation of giving someone MDMA just sure. so that they can sort out what really is taking place. And you see some of the pictures of the old clinical settings, and they look extremely sterile. I couldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be doing MDMA in a in a setting as sterile as they made it. Right, and so it's understandable why they yeah. made some of those decisions yeah, because the, the the output of of the research is then you can actually say, okay, this is. This is what we sure. observed, right? And so give a sense of an objective reality for everybody to share about it. However, at the same time, uh, it, uh, the, the question that I began to formulate was, well, wait a second. Um, since then, all of the information that's come out about MDMA has focused on kind of two sets of, of 
uh, information gathering, right? So one set of people that information is gathered from is in this sterile scientific medicalized mm -hmm. model where it's seeing this substance as a medicine or potential medicine, an adjunct to therapy actually. Mm -hmm. And the other set of people that it was investigated on was people that were uh, supposedly abusing it or using it recreationally. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that was packaged as these people were putting themselves at risk. And so it was all about associ like associated with harms of drug use, um, especially like polydrug use. They recognize that MDMA makes you feel good mm -hmm. and it could possibly lead towards you using other drugs, True. right? Gateway and so, drug stigma. Right. Yeah. And so within that, a lot of those people were also um, young folks, right? Uh, uh, it's easy to gather um, respondents for research in college university campuses. So a lot of the age group were people that were, you know, under 26 years of age, right? It was, uh, and that's just because they, it was simple. They all gathered at a university, they experiment with some drugs, and then you can ask questions about it, right? Mm -hmm. So within that, I, was, I had to question, like, why was the medical model the direction we needed to go? Because people may use MDMA for reasons other than just dealing with trauma or you know, PTSD sure. is what it's big for. Um, and then on the other side, it was like, oh, well, then uh, the drug just kind of got wrote off because this other set was people that were exploring it. So it was like, oh, they're just drug users. Mm -hmm. They're escaping reality. It's this escape of mental. Uh, they, they relate it to addiction and, oh, they don't have control over it or this or that. And I was like, well, I can understand that some people may, it, it may sure. be experimental use. But also that that probably isn't the end of the story either right. because people will choose it to do it later. Yeah, right? you can't generalize the whole recreational um, field, you know, to to this one subset of addicts. Right. Yeah, and I, I feel like um, that's probably another reason why you and I connected too because uh, my greatest interest in the use of psychedelics is isn't I mean it's awesome that we're using it to to treat disorders and to treat things like that. That's amazing and I love that work my interest though is for everyone else like the general population people who don't have all these serious issues going on can they still benefit from it as well and how can they benefit whether it's through spiritual experience or for me personally I've, I've been um, experimenting with uh, microdosing for performance enhancement whether it's cognitive performance enhancement physical performance enhancement um, you know uh, problem-solving abilities things like that um, so I, I love that, that you, you recognize these two subsets and that you chose this path um, that I think is far less chosen, the one that you and I are on, um, pursuing it. Like, how do we get it across to the general public that this could be beneficial for them too, even if, you know, even if it, they don't have depression or right. even if they don't have PTSD? Right. Yeah, and that was and that that was where you know I had the advantage in the radical department was to yeah. to question those shoulders that uh, I was standing on, That's awesome. and to then say, okay, well, so I took what's called a grounded theory approach, which just which just means that my research was grounded in the experience of the people that uh, I was investigating, mm -hmm. and so within that, instead of saying, hey, did you all use this because of PTSD, or hey, did you all just use this for fun, I asked the open-ended question. Hey, why do you all use this? Mm -hmm. Right. And so it sounds simple. Um, but then what I did is I formulated a, a, a theory of use based in, in, in how they use the substance. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, like trying to put the, uh, you know, clinical hat on top of their use and describe it that way. I could, you know, you can, you can see how there might be crossovers. Sure. It's more of a bottom up approach, wouldn't it? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, um, 
Yeah, so within that, what it generated is, like I said, this dialogue with ghosts, um, is then it's saying, okay, well, so um, these, these, these shoulders that I'm standing on, just because I'm standing on them doesn't mean that they had it entirely right. So can we see this from a new angle, mm-hmm. right? And so that's, in this sense of mind, is it's kind of like, oh, can we actually take a different perspective on the minds of these couples, right? And so, you know, these are adult couples. They were over 30 years old. Uh, they were uh, a span of professions. Uh, we had everybody, you know, a range of income from over $135,000 a year all the way down to uh, people that made, you know, like $10,000 a year, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they had jobs, they had kids, pets, animals, um, lives, friends. I mean, they, they did all of the thing. And uh, every couple of months, they would take MDMA with their partner. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what was interesting is the stigma that they experienced. Like one person described it as this. She said, I asked, I asked the question, have you ever, um, <clears throat> let's see, what was the question? It was about, have, have you ever regretted that you've taken drugs? And the woman just shot back. She said, the only time I ever regret taking drugs is right after I've taken drugs. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> I was, I I was like, before. oh, okay, right. And so uh, what was fun is for her to pick, a, pick that apart. And she goes, I'm not actually worried about the drug. Sometimes, she said, historically, sometimes she was. Like, when first trying a drug, she might be like, oh, I wish I hadn't taken this because sure. I don't know what's going to happen. However, she said more so it was about the stigma of, like, oh, what if someone found out I'm high right now? Mm. What would society think? Or what if I saw someone from work or whatever, right? And so it was more about the stigma of being seen as a drug user, someone who gets high, that she was actually fearful of, right? Mm. Like that was why she was worried about taking drugs, which was because of that stigma. Had nothing to do with the actual drug. She was excited about that. And, you know, with MDMA, she said, oh, in about 15 minutes... I didn't have that regret anymore. Sure. I felt great. <laughs> uh, yeah, I felt great, and I recognized that I was with my husband, and she, you know, she was just there in it to win it, yeah. right? Um, but it was interesting that, yeah, that was the, a lot of the piece that they hold, you know, uh, is a sense of social stigma, right? Yeah. Like being seen or addressed as a drug user. And I'm like, well, boy, that's that's an interesting guilt to carry, especially when you're using a substance that they find so much value in, mm-hmm. right? They see they see changes not only in their relationship with their partner, but also their friends, their family, their coworkers, like uh, the full spectrum of relationships. Even even with larger you know social systems, not just people, but you know, like saying, oh, well, then this is my relationship to capitalism, and am I going to make more purpose? purposeful decisions and how I lead my life in that yeah and so we see so we see from you know I mean you are taking a chemical substance it's altering your body chemistry temporarily and there are physical changes going on inside the body caused by the drug but what you're also describing is this lasting effect of positive changes well after the half-life of the drug has left your system right Right. so in effect we're talking about um, a chemical or a molecule that is having a physical interaction with our own ecosystem and causes not only a shift in the body temporarily, but a shift in this consciousness, this mind space mm-hmm. over longer periods of time, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it, you know, the change may have always been primed and ready to be to be taken, but maybe this was a catalyst that needed to happen, mm-hmm. right? Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so it's kind of a, it's a shift in paradigm um, like the school of thought that we look around substances right mm-hmm. now the in the in the traditional medical model um, addressing like depression right Let, let's um, I'm trying to think of something that would be easily transferable uh, so um, 
let's say okay let's use let's use like PTSD and uh, depression and anxiety related to that right uh, the traditional medical model uh, they see somebody who is depressed and they use this false metaphor of a chemical imbalance mm -hmm. in order to justify giving a drug like an SSRI which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor right mm -hmm. and so what that does is it just it, 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 it's it forces the body to selectively reuptake the serotonin which is in the neural synapse right what that ends up doing is suppressing some of the symptoms of depression, right? Mm -hmm. It can, uh, because there's this reuptake, uh, uh, there's not the inhi inhibition, there's more serotonin left in the synapse that eventually will be um, either dissolved back into the body or used usefully, right? And so then it, it, it makes it more available uh, to make the person feel better. It's kind of a, it's a very simplified breakdown of it. It's not actually um, totally correct. But anyway what that is doing is trying uh, to suppress the symptoms of depression. Sure. Right. So Certainly it's not dealing with model. the, yeah, it's not right. dealing with the root cause. No, no. And so it's, it's not actually doing that. It's just saying, Hey, we can suppress these symptoms so that you can go to work or that you can uh, do the day to day raising of your kids. Right. I mean, and, and so it is, it is this addressing of symptoms, but it's a suppressive model. Whereas on the other side, the, the psychedelic paradigm is evocative right and actually says oh well we understand that depression can have uh, all sorts of roots and that if we evoke some of those roots uh, which is also the paradigm of like just traditional psychotherapy that we can um, we can come to a, a, a sorting of those roots and maybe a different understanding in our lives today sure. and so that can alleviate some of those symptoms this is kind of a longer process like if you're just doing talk therapy you know people report that it can take years some people report that it's very very brief right you mm -hmm. kind of go in you're like oh wow I got this issue oh I've never talked about that oh here let me talk about it oh you leave feeling better sure. right um, where psychedelics are, are, are kind of like the scalpel for that, right. where it comes in and says, okay, we're going to really evoke roots. And um, I think one of the interesting parts about psychedelics as well is that opening, the, the change in our subjective experience, uh, the way it evokes things is heightened by our ability to make bisociation. Bisociation is a creative quality of associating two different ideas in a unique way, mm -hmm. right? And so in our sober minds, we kind of have an analytical framework and we're like, oh, okay, we kind of will we'll This is good, that's bad, stay away from this, yeah. more of that, right? Associative right. learning and, and things like that. And so the bisociation of ideas related to like PTSD, it may take a long time for, like let's say there's a war veteran who experienced these traumas, it may take a long time to uncover exactly what was traumatic yeah. and then to bisociate the idea of coping with it in a different way in the now sure. right like realizing that you were helpless uh realizing that, that you know like you wish you could have made other choices all of those things that generate the trauma and then the, the post-traumatic mm -hmm. stress right um so then you know it would be uh the bisociation is the new a new way to cope with it in the now where with psychedelics it kind of adds to the spectrum of bisociation where like um, it gives you more options. It gives you more options, absolutely. Options, uh, yeah. Feelings might be associated with colors, mm. which then can be more easily associated to references to uh, visual scenes, right? And so what I'm trying to get at is that psychedelics kind of offer a different... Uh, if you thought of it as, a, as like um, a different register in a sheet of music, right? Sure. You know, um, 
it, it, it opens that up. So then you have, you know, the whole spectrum of, 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 of different sounds and stuff you can use to create instead of just like the baseline. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but yeah, so in that evocative model, it, it really allows us to then uh, explore the sensations in our body. So right, instead of just saying like, "Oh, I experienced war and it was uh, you know really scary to see my friends die and feel helpless in that," but actually to locate it in the body and mm -hmm. say, "Oh, okay. Well, so where did where do you feel powerless?" And like, "Well, my legs. I was pinned under a vehicle. I felt trapped and helpless." And so actually going back to the legs and being able to. Um, to revisit that on psychedelics is totally than if you were different sure. than if you were sober. Right? Yeah. So you, you mentioned this, you know, this word evocative, right? And mm -hmm. I would totally agree with you that these psychedelics bring about this, it evokes, um, the trauma, the feeling, the emotions. Mm -hmm. Right. And I hear, I hear from a lot of people that I talk to who don't have experience with psychedelics and they ask me about it and it's therapeutic benefits and I tell them you know it's it's not a recreational thing it's a challenging experience and here's why because it, it brings these traumas to the surface so that we can finally start working with them because mm -hmm. if they're constantly suppressed it's like trying to manipulate something that's underneath the ground right much mm -hmm. more difficult than if you dig it up to the surface mm -hmm. and this idea of bringing the trauma up after being suppressed for so long is so scary to people. You know, they, they say, I don't know if I could ever do that because I'm already dealing with this suppressed trauma and it's this bad already. Like if I bring it all to the surface, I'm going to freak out, you oh, know, crap. I'm, I'm going to die. Yeah, exactly. And so I hear number one, that fear piece, but from my own experience, the, the bringing up and evoking that, um, like you said, um, you know, psychedelics expand much more than our thought options, but, you know, we know that it, it expands our visual perception. We're able to see colors and dimensions and uh, that are there that we, we can't normally see under normal conditions. Um, and it opens our mind. It helps our brain hemispheres communicate better, all these things. Um, what do you find most, uh, most useful about the evocative state itself? Because a lot of people do fear that. Yeah. You know, and it so, turns them away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just going with the example of PTSD and a war veteran, if you're going about a traditional method, um, the the healing piece, if we were going to say there was a piece, is the relationship between that person and uh, the person they've trusted to evoke these memories, mm -hmm. right? And so in talk therapy, you've entrusted the therapist or the counselor to help you evoke these in a way that you can feel safe, that you can touch into them and realize that you will return unbroken or better is mm -hmm. the hope. Um, and so that relationship, building that relationship takes time. There's also lots of things that can impede uh, the progress of that, right? Um, and that's just, uh, it's just the nature of human relationships, uh, meeting several times. Um, there might be little micro things that could happen that actually don't instill trust, right? And it could just be as simple as a body gesture from the counselor mm -hmm. when something comes out. You know, like maybe they uh, mentioned something about their lifestyle and the counselor fidgets and adjusts. They're like, well, wait a second, can I trust sure. this person or not? Exactly. Right? Where with psychedelics, um, <clears throat> there has to be first almost a baseline level of your own trust. Like, even if this has been recommended by somebody else, you make the decision to become altered on the substance. Mm -hmm. And so you have to trust yourself in order to, to just experiment with something that you've never done, if they've never done it, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so within that, you're building the relationship is with yourself and trusting that, as well as the person that's recommended or the person that will be there for it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, as 
the psychedelic experience happens, uh, the evoking, what's, what's interesting about it is a lot of these substances also come with uh, the, different, the, the experience of like letting go right and so that can be letting go of all sorts of things letting go of physical things letting go of the concepts or whatever uh, but it can be a letting go of fear right and so that letting go of fear can actually allow us to access things differently but letting go really does take trust mm -hmm. and so on the on the individual's experience and letting go and touching into uh, you know letting go of fear and actually touching into these experiences they're learning to trust themselves to go there and uh, within that, that they'll, you know, that, that hopefully they'll return. And so, um, I just I, I see that as being the primary beneficial thing is evoking a person's own sense of inner trust, mm -hmm. it, trust to let go or a trust to receive to take in. Um, and so, a, a lot of the work I think that happens in the therapeutic space with psychedelics is a is a is, is a generally about that, right? Sure. Um, trusting that someone can be okay today, right? Um, and that is kind of like developed in their relationship with themselves and the substance on a very in inside experience, rather than like in therapy where it's this person across the chair that you happen to trust. Does sure. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And in some of your um, nonprofit work, so Rob um, helps run uh, what's what's called no, the No Act Society, um, and he'll go over the, the website if you guys want to find this out. but. Um, in your work with the NOAC Society, um, you guys volunteer at festivals, right? We have, yeah. Yep. Yep. And, um, and you've encountered people, uh, you know, having a challenging experience mm -hmm. in these states, right? Um, I have as well. And from, from what I feel, um, these extreme challenges are what, you know, if you're having trouble visualizing what a challenging experience is, uh, just go to your stereotypical, um, you know, what what uh, the propaganda would call a bad trip, right? Um, for our listeners who are trying to imagine this. So um, I find that, that most of these uh, bad trips are because people are having trouble letting go, right? Uh, they're holding on um, out of fear during the experience. You know, this trauma comes up, um, they're fearful, but instead of letting go, maybe they're not feeling safe in the environment that they're in or with the people that they're with. Mm -hmm. They're not able to let go and um, go into the experience. Rather, mm -hmm. they're, they're holding on to this reality, and, and mm -hmm. that, that doesn't work in these states. You know, mm -hmm. um, They're much more facilitative uh, if you do let go. And I feel like mm -hmm. the facilitator's role is largely to help um, the person let go in whatever way that that is i've seen um stan groff do somatic releases which is really cool i've seen um things like that uh in in general psychotherapy helping people let go of mm -hmm. of um, blockages or defense mechanisms or things like that too mm -hmm. um, but the facilitator's job is also uh you know with this trust idea to maintain the physical safety of the person right mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. if the person in the experience knows that i'm going to be feeling all these things in my body and it may sometimes feel like I'm being confined or that um, I'm going to explode or, you know, that something's going to happen to my body. I know that this person sitting right next to me is going to keep my physical self safe. So I can mm -hmm. kind of let go of my physical body and go deeper into, you know, what just opened up for me, which is a, a complete expansion of conscious thought and mm -hmm. um, connections and answers to questions I've had for a long time and things mm -hmm. like that. Right. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I, I like that. The way um, I've kind of looked at it, or the way I like to package it is um, 
I talked. I like to talk about it as people facing crisis, and mm-hmm. so the definition that I use for crisis is actually similar to a turning point, right? Mm-hmm. A crisis is a turning point, and at that point, it could turn towards the more positive, or a crisis could also turn towards a more negative, mm-hmm. right? And so, in this example of a festival where um, somebody who's having a, a quote-unquote bad trip. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, is in crisis, and I, I will say that I, I in my festival work, I've seen people in crisis that were absolutely sober. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So it doesn't take drugs to <laughs> sure. create crisis, and absolutely. anybody can kind of grasp that. Yeah. But if we see crisis as like this turning point of like, wow, something is up, something is taking place, and it's a turning point. The facilitator basically is there to help them facilitate turning towards a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. Right, and so some of the things that can do that can be um, the encouragement of safety or uh, allowing them um, mobility in their choice, feeling a sense of agency. Mm-hmm. Um, that that can make people feel safe. Like, hey, I understand you're in crisis, and I'm just going to be here with you. Right, you're going to be safe. I'm not going to let you. You know, like nobody's going to come intervene with you that you don't want, or you know, whatever. And so then that that helps them start to turn towards a crisis. So. Uh, and the festival scene, the other direction could be not feeling positive, right? Not, not positive outcomes. And so maybe friends, because they're altered as well, they, they, they wind up the situation and, and, and generate more anxiety or something. That's turned towards a negative outcome, right? Because right. then maybe security get, gets called. And yep. while so this person in a, a crisis state sees authorities showing up and they're like, oh boy, I can't trust this now, right? right? So now you're turning more towards that. So maybe that agitates them more, then they, they start flailing around. Well, security then has to actually restrain right. them. Oh, bummer. Yeah, does well, security is... even know how to deal with these type of people? Right, and so not understanding where they're at or what, what, why this person might be responding is because they don't feel safe. So what do they do is they actually put them in a safe where they remove more agency and make them feel less safe. Yeah. Then typically what the next step would be would be a trip to the paramedics tent and strap down to a gurney. And if you are still unable to recover your sense of uh, you know, pulling it together in front of these paramedics, uh, they'll, they take away more agency. They'll tranquilize you. And right? they stop your process. Stop, right there. stop, stop so all of it. Whatever trauma just emerged and whatever crisis just emerged was stopped in its track and not giving given the space or the time to resolve itself. Right. And so, yeah, you, you can absolutely see how this plays out uh, like on a psychedelic trip where absolutely. it's like, oh, it was jarring for LSD. You can also see this in subjective experience. Like, let's say the person was agitated, not because of drugs, but because of a fight with their spouse, yeah. right? Like, let's say they were just super anxious, super found their spouse angry, cheating yeah. while they were at the festival. They're pissed off. Security shows up, says, hey, if you can't keep this together, we're going to we're gonna take you and, you, you know, whatever. Next thing, you know, they just start spouting stuff that sounds crazy. They're like, oh, I think it's mental health. Well, this person's just in distress, right? right. They just cheated on. They end up in the paramedics. Same thing. Get tranquilized. Yeah. They also have stopped that process of, of being able to sort out their feelings with their partner. Absolutely. Right? And so then they've, they've kind of entered into this whole other realm of like now they're either going to jail or go, going to the hospital or whatever. And so that's where the work that they're now doing is. Instead of focused on that initial part of like, oh, yo, my, my partner cheated on me at a festival and that hurts terribly. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of dealing with that or going towards that, they have this other set of outcomes, right? So within that, um, like the facilitators of that experience could have gone towards like, hey, why are you so angry? Why are you so wrapped up? Right. Maybe it's because they took drugs and they're just <laughs> really, mm-hmm. really amped up. Or maybe it's because, yeah, there's this other experience that then could be handled differently. Yeah. But if the, that process isn't slowed down, crisis will typically point towards the, the, the nervous system uh, becoming more wound up, you know, more agitated, 
and then you know the tools become less available for the facilitators, right? And so yeah, then they end up with uh, security, paramedics, sure. all that. You know, as you're speaking about the psychedelic experience, uh, what's going on in my head at the same time concurrently is my experience on the mats in jujitsu too, right? Mm. So every single day I'm faced with crisis after crisis after crisis, right? People are putting me in, yeah. in challenging situations physically I'm over and over and over, right, over and over. And I have two paths, right? I can choose the negative path and freak out about the crisis and then my respiration goes crazy and I end up making myself pass out faster. Mm. Or I can choose to go the positive direction, slow myself down and start to pay attention to like, why am I feeling this way? Uh, oh, my arm is in danger. And then figuring out a logical way to make your way out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, I don't know, I've, I've always had a passion for um, mental preparedness and um, preventative um, tools that we can use to prevent things like PTSD or at least lessen the, the effects that, that trauma has on us, you mm-hmm. know? Um, preventative, you know, emotional regulation skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and those aren't being taught to our kids. You know, kids aren't learning how to even recognize what an emotion is, uh, name it, um, you know, locate it in the body, like you said, and deal with it effectively. Um, and I feel like we're doing a disservice in that sense, you know, if we were to go back to, because it used to be emphasized um, back in the day, you know, hundreds of years ago, there was a, a stronger emphasis on the social education, um, the spiritual side, the emotional side, um, you know, the mental tools side, uh, not just this consumerism, how productive can you be, or physical attributes, the development of physical attributes. Um, so developing resilience, I think, ahead of time um, could be beneficial in these, you know, 20, 30, 40 years if we start implementing stuff like that mm-hmm. in schools, you know, maybe we'll have people who, who after they get cheated on by their wife can recognize, you know, that really hurt, you know, instead mm-hmm. of transforming it into anger and and acting out like in that example mm-hmm. that you provided mm-hmm. um sorry that was a little tangent off to the side yeah, about one of my interests but the preventative side um i just love this talking about this stuff mm-hmm. the mental tools for me um have been key in being able to manage my own um um turning towards crisis right mm-hmm. it's allowed me even not only the freedom to be able to explore crisis and diffuse it within myself but also uh, get excited when crisis comes up you know <laughs> when crisis inside me comes up um i used to see it as like some big obstacle some big challenge that needed to be overcome or squashed mm-hmm. or repressed or suppressed just to function and now i see a crisis or a challenge come up and my mind goes right to opportunity you know like uh it's like a, a growth mindset like hey this is an opportunity to get even better you know mm-hmm. um I don't know if you experienced the same thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, within that, like I said, I have a spread of credentials, you know, a PhD most recently, but I also have a master's in counseling psychology. Mm-hmm. And within that... Like, That's where I got them mixed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> within that, um, the point, of, like, to, to me, from my perspective as a counselor, my point uh, of interaction with another person is to help them discover more choice in the ways that they act in the world, right? And more choice in how they experience it. Um, and one of that, one of the ways to do that is to, to bring more awareness 
uh, to the things that they experience, right? And so seeing crisis as the opportunity for information, yeah, right? Exactly. You receive a lot of information. Well, I, uh, I would say you receive more information from a crisis than you do from like a success. Would you? Uh, so yeah, and, and it's kind of, it's, uh, it's a bummer that our, you know, culture and society is oriented that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, we, but it's easier for us to decide what not to do based on bad outcomes mm-hmm. based, rather than deciding what to do based on the positive outcomes. Mm-hmm. We do that, but it's not as an active, uh, thing. Right? Well, I, I guess I should put it a different way. So I, I feel like I learn more from the mistakes that I make. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they, you know, I don't really put a negative connotation on mistakes that I make anymore, but mm-hmm. when I do make a mistake, I feel like I, I gain more information about myself and, and how to redirect my course. Then if I have a success at something, then it's just kind of like confirmation that I did things right already. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I'm not receiving as much download, as much information. Right. Right. Um, and you're saying yeah. we're cult- kind of culturally conditioned to, to, um, to be that way or to, to focus more on the Well, it's, that's mistakes. one perspective you can take on it. I don't know if it's a belief that that's... But I think that as far as culturally, we are situated towards that. And sure. a lot of it has to do with, I believe, Puritan values, um, Christian Puritan values that are related to sinning and sinner. Mm-hmm. And so within that, that paradigm uh, suggests that we're broken and we have to work to be better. Yeah. And so broken uh, from the start. Exactly. And so that, that trickles right into capitalism. You don't even have to be a part of Christianity, but part of capitalism. And all of a sudden you're taking on that same mentale of like, Oh, if I want to get ahead, I have to compete in a market. What makes me competitive in a market system? Oh, I have to either have, you know, uh, I have to have surplus, surplus value of something, right? I have to contribute something. So I'm already starting from a place of less than. Right. Right. And so within that, when anything that makes us more less than, we absolutely take as like more credible information. Sure. Right. Like sure. it's a, it's even seen if you get ahead in market capitalism, uh, it's a lot a lot of times luck or you know mm. it may be temporary. Or good fortune. Right? Good fortune. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just like yeah no effort. you've got this you yeah. honed in on it right. on a smart move right. Um, so it's just it's it's just kind of funny that that kind of plays out. Um, Max Weber's book. Uh, uh, the Protestant Ethic and Capitalism is a good read. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just really does break down that, that, that Protestant ethic. And, you know, part of the Protestant ethic is the promise of a better tomorrow, right? Like, you work hard right now today here on this planet because that's the only thing that's going to save you in the afterlife and right. then you'll be happy, which is an interesting way to go about life. Why can't we be happy today? Right. Why right? can't this be it? <laughs> Why can't we create this heaven that we seek after right here today Absolutely. in this moment? Yeah. Why isn't this it? Yeah. And, I, and, yeah. yeah. I love how there's, there's such stark contrast between, um, I mean, there's a lot of crossover between like Buddhism and Christianity and uh, there's a lot of crossover, but that's yep. one of the biggest distinctions between the two is that these uh, Western faiths say you are flawed from the beginning. Whereas Buddhist um, practice says you are perfect. From yeah, the you're beginning. basically sane, or you're basically a sinner, right? right. Like, that, that's the yeah, <laughs> it's, it's crazy, uh, and and how that makes me feel day to day. Having adopted uh, more of a Buddhist philosophy for myself, I feel like every day is you know is a blessing, is a you know creating this heaven on earth for myself, you know. Um, whereas before it was it was fear based. Like, what if mm-hmm. I do this? What's going to happen? And oh my mm-hmm. goodness, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and so that's also like part of like the crisis in capitalism is that that fear, you know, and so it's it's the fear that you'll fall behind, mm-hmm. 
And so or that's, that you won't that's, reach it. You right, won't make you it. Won't you reach won't quite it. make so that's, it. So that's how people, you know, like if, if that's the crisis of capitalism, well, then people are making these decisions in a state of crisis. Yeah. And what are they going to choose? Well, the simplest to get their outcome. And so if that's like a house to support their family, well, they're going to go keep going to that job that they don't like because yep. that's providing this other outcome, right? And so it makes sense. Even if that job is terrorizing the person mm -hmm. and is not fulfilling at all, that's the crisis of capitalism. Yes, you have to keep doing that stupid bullshit job because if you don't you won't have the things that you like True. or want right and then you're not going to be happy you're right gonna be you're not going to be happy right exactly mm -hmm. and so then it's also a promise for tomorrow of like oh well and i want to make sure that i can leave the kids something i'm not going to enjoy all this money i make i have to make sure i can leave it to somebody else that's a funny crisis to be in True. people generate all of this money or all of these and things never and, then, and never use it or never you know never get to appreciate it um so yeah and i think that that's that's one of the interesting shifts that it, you see uh, about people within capitalism is when they have like done the soul-sucking job, right? Like their response to the crisis of capitalism has turned and, and just gone towards negative outcomes for them. They've become stressed, uh, depressed, you know, whatever, um, all of the things. Uh, or then they'll have this like awakening and be like, oh, I have to go towards my passion or I have to mm. go towards what I believe in. And maybe it's not making the most money. Maybe it's just making yeah. enough money to get by. Well, I think there have been studies um, done with, with people near death where they ask them, you know, what was their biggest regrets? And a lot of them is not pursuing their passion, not pursuing their dream, that they focus so much on acquiring goods and acquiring money and things like that. Um, I don't want to be one of those people on my deathbed with those regrets. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm fortunate and lucky enough to have found my passion early on and latched on to a career um, that I would be studying even if I wasn't you know, getting paid for it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm lucky enough to have had that, and I, I hope that for everybody out there who's listening. Um, but if you are stuck in a job that you don't like, yeah, it's time to wake up. That's where I was. That's actually, wake up. Yeah, that's where I wanted to go with that is uh, to to reach out to people that might be feeling that and that they're in that like, hey, actually, I'm just recognizing I'm in this crisis of capitalism, and I've been turning towards negative outcomes for yeah. myself for things that feel bad. Um, you know, to the bit of advice that comes from this conversation is, well, first off, slow down the process a little. Mm -hmm. um, that will help you discover areas of choice. And, you know, the choice wouldn't, might not necessarily be like, oh, quit that job today. Mm -hmm. um, the choice might be like, oh, start looking for something else. Or go or back to school. Go back to school. Yeah. Discover what your passion is. And, you know, if, if, if that seems daunting of like, oh, I would go back to school, but I don't know what it is because I don't know what my passion is. Oh, well, then start closer to home and, and, and rediscover some of those passions, right? And so, uh, you know, we live, we live in a time where, you know, there, there's not a ton of security in career choices, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, I was told in high school that I could expect to change my career anywhere between seven and nine times. And I'm pretty sure that I already have. I, 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 don't, I haven't kept track just because I kind of set off with that expectation. But what I've appreciated is that there were choice points um, that I made. And, and, and some of them were bound like, oh, no, I actually needed to, to get a job to make some money. And so I chose that and I went into construction where I could get a better wage. I also did that for you know like five and a half, almost six years, and realized that it was a terrible environment. I didn't like being in it. As a, as a social justice warrior, it was mm -hmm. terrible to show up on a job site where I saw uh, wage disparity and immigration shit that was going on. It was mm -hmm. just grossening. I saw racism, homophobia, yeah. sexism, like all of the isms, and I'm just like, charge me up. So then it created another crisis of capitalism. Like, oh, 
do I keep going this right. path and, and get a, you know yeah I, I could have been making seventy five to eighty five thousand dollars a year uh, very quickly at that point. Um, but I was like, no, this is soul sucking. So there was another crisis. And so that's when I decided to change and go into education. And I knew I wanted to work with people. That's all I knew. And so I just went towards that. Um, and it's generated its own outcomes, right? Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't have at that time guessed that I would end up with a PhD. Uh, however, I'm stoked that I have because, I, like I said, I'm a social justice warrior. So to end up with a PhD in a realm that is, it applies to that, that sense Absolutely. of my inner self, like, hooray. Right, and as long as you continue to go in the direction of your passion, more doors continue to open. As long as you continue in that direction, doors will continue to open. And they can take, and yeah, to emphasize again, slowing down the process, yeah. it can't all happen at once. Yeah. Uh, it's been the hardest thing for me to, to learn um, over the years. Um, in a, in a psychedelic experience years ago that I had, uh, I had a conversation with the goddess. That's the best way mm -hmm. I can describe what it was. She was, she was clearly a goddess. She was clearly communing with me. And uh, my question, I was like, well, what do, I, what do I have to do to make this all happen? And the reminder was, you can't gulp from the cup of life. Mm. You can only sip. Yeah, and so I was like, "Oh, I, I want a gulp!" Right at the time, I was just like, "Oh, what do I do to make this, I want this happen?" I want, yeah, 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 I want, the, I want, I want to have a, you know, a clinic where we do really good healing work with people next year. She's right. like, "Oh no, this is going to take a decade and a half." Yeah. <laughs> so I had to remember to continue to sip from that cup, yeah. Um, and then yeah, yeah. Sometimes you take a sip, and it might be a little bitter, yeah. and so then that's some information for you. Be yeah. like, "Oh, okay. Well, is this the direction I want to keep going? Do I want to keep sipping this bitter cup?" Or do you want to change cups, you know, and, and, and make a new choice? So um, I, w I feel like we have so much more we could talk about, and I hope to have you back on the podcast, too, to continue expanding on all these topics. Um, everything we bring up seems to generate even more, uh, and I yeah. love that. That's, those are the really good conversations. Um, but I wanted to make sure here at the end of the podcast that I leave some space because I know you wanted to bring up a specific project that you're working on with the right to try laws mm -hmm. um, here in Colorado. Um, and so maybe for our, for our listeners, um, I mean, I, I'm sorry we have such short time, but maybe in the next five minutes you can mm -hmm. break it down for people and let them know how you're involved and how they can get involved and what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, the mission of the NOAC Society is to build uh, educated, informed, and empowered relationships between people, communities, and the substances and medicines we interact with. And so from that baseline of a mission, um, we've, we've just looked for ways that that applies to our community. And so we were made aware that Colorado in 2014 uh, passed uh, the, the Right to Try Act, which allowed for a person with terminal illness the right to try uh, any treatment that had passed a phase one clinical study, uh, which is the human safety trials, right? And then actively be moving on to further, further trials. Um, the wording in the, in the state legislation was kind of specific, so it, it made it uh, difficult necessarily to apply uh, to psychedelics. However, in May of this year, uh, the uh, federal government actually passed and was signed into law a Right to Try Act um, that is a little bit more loose, um, and it doesn't go towards necessarily like a life-saving treatment. Um, so this can just, uh, this can, uh, I don't have the legislation wording in mm -hmm. front of me, but basically what it has allowed is, is, is for people with a terminal or serious illness, um, uh, the ability to approach a, a treatment manufacturer, a drug manufacturer, for the use of any treatment that's passed a phase one clinical study. And so that, that includes MDMA, LSD, psilocybin, and ibogaine, 
uh, as far as the psychedelics that we've seen. Within the United States. Within the United yeah. States. And that's huge. And that is huge. Um, and so, uh, you know, from all of, all of the different research that I've done throughout the years, I was aware, uh, you know, John Hop Johns Hopkins University has been doing research on this for like 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. uh, psilocybin specifically. Uh, they've also done other uh, uh, substances as well, but a very robust literature uh, on uh, the use of psilocybin for all sorts of things. They've used healthy volunteers, they've used dying volunteers. Um, the, the number one component that they found was that uh, uh, the use of psilocybin just generates mystical type experiences. Mm -hmm. And so the mystical type experience could be a full spectrum um, and, and it's related to the individual. It could be uh, relations to their experience of Buddhism or Christianity or whatever. Um, it's very individualized. Um, but so that, that that mystical type experience generating the benefit to the person to then explore the existential crisis of dying. Yeah. Yeah. And so So that's, it's, help, it's helping people um, ease into death rather than um, be so fearful um, sort of bringing a calming presence after having a spiritual connection. Yeah, and, and, and it may not necessarily be calming. It's, it's definitely evocative because yeah. um, it can be evocative to the timing, right? And so it might be the process of someone realizing, hey, you know what? I don't have much time left. I need to get current on my relationships. There's yeah. that brother that I haven't talked to in 20 years. Yo, this is the time. And that decision may have been harder before the use of, uh, of, of, of psilocybin, sure. right? So how do, how do people get involved with uh, what you're doing with Right to Trust? Well, so right now, actually, we're just trying to educate people and advocate. Uh, as far as the NOAC Society, that's about as far as we can take it. Um, and how can they get in touch with NOAC? Uh, so you, their website is uh, thenoacsociety.org. Um, you can find information about us on there. Uh, we are, we've been giving right to try uh, inf info sessions, um, helping inform professionals and things like that. We're really just trying to educate people about the legislation that exists uh, so that we can begin to build that network of, of people with that understanding um, because as we have, we've discovered that people have used this. There's a, there's a gentleman out of, I believe he's out of Denver, who actually uh, began using the, the, the legislation under Colorado Right to Try, but his psychiatrist prescribed him psilocybin. And the reason it was is uh, he's got, uh, I believe, tumors all over his body, but on his spine that are inoperable. And so they will eventually uh, take his life. And the use of psilocybin was recommended, and so he's been using this to, to face some of that existential angst, mm -hmm. right? Um, one, of the, one of the great things about this is he's been able to manage his own use. Right? It's not like every day he wakes up, he takes psilocybin. That's, right. not, that's not how the medicine works. Uh, the medicine kind of delivers a message, and then over the coming days or weeks, he integrates that and, right? unpacks, and, it, and yeah. unpacks it. Right, So maybe it is um, contacting out. Um, but that's opposed to like the other treatments that are available, which are suppressive and antidepressant, like, hey, just don't feel depressed tomorrow. It'll be okay. So anyway, um, yes, yeah, so that's some of the advocacy work that we're awesome. doing. Awesome. Um, well, I want to thank you again, Rob, for being here. Um, I would really love to have you again in the future. Um, and, you know, here's to more future conversations. Thank you for adding, for helping me add uh, to the body of knowledge out there that people can access um, to help them make their own decisions within this internal mental space that we all have access to that's seems to be uh, difficult to navigate it many times. So, um, Ineffable nature. <laughs> yeah, so I appreciate your contribution today. Um, I want to remind all of our listeners to please like and share our podcast. We also have a place on our podcast page where people can donate to the podcast if they want to help support. Um, we do plan on getting um, microphones, and I'm going to build a podcast studio in the future 
Um, so any contributions that come in will go directly towards that. I don't make any income off of this podcast. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, everybody have a great day. And if you need to contact myself or Rob, you can reach out to me on my website, mindops.com or on the noaxsociety.org. Yep. Um, and we'll see you next time. Episode 10 is coming up right around the corner. Thanks, Shane.